My feet had almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray. For I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have an easy time until they die, and their bodies are well fed. They're not in trouble like others. They're not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge out from fatness. The imaginations of their hearts run wild. They mock, and they speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven, and their tongues strut across the earth. Therefore, people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. The wicked say, how can God know? Does the Most High know everything? Look at them, the wicked. They are always at ease, and they increase their wealth. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? For I am afflicted all day long and punished every morning. If I had decided to say these things aloud, I would have betrayed God's people. When I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless. I became embittered, and my innermost being was wounded. I was stupid and didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal toward God. So writes the psalmist in Psalm 73. His observations of the wicked, what he saw with his own eyes, and the reflections and conclusions he drew from what he saw, had so cultivated a beastly bitterness that he was marked primarily by animal instinct, lashing out unthinkingly in spiraling despair because what he could see seemed to constitute all that was, and what he observed was empty and senseless, unjust and unrighteous. If there was more to be understood, he could not comprehend it. If there was something to be done, he could not command it. And as the psalmist found himself backed into a corner, snarling and biting like a stray and panicked dog, so we too look upon the way the world seemingly works under the sun and react brutishly, rushing ultimately toward consuming despair as we fail to make sense of or effect change upon what we see. What can keep us from that final despair? from throwing our hands up in heart-hardened, functional godlessness. Well, Ecclesiastes 4, 1 to 5, 7, our passage this morning, conducts us through this dark valley of questioning emptiness under the sun. And finally, even as purposelessness clamors in our ears, lifts our eyes above the sun. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your living and active word. We thank you this morning particularly for the book of Ecclesiastes. And we ask that you would give us a sensitivity from your spirit, wisdom and understanding to discern our way in this world, to make sense of life under the sun, and to do so in light of your great glory and goodness. 
fix our eyes on Christ and to follow after him. So would you guide us in this time and be honored in it. Amen. Well, as we come to our passage this morning, I'd like to pick up the image that Pastor Jared used last Sunday as he worked through Ecclesiastes 3, that of a lawn, a freshly mowed and manicured lawn and the opportunity to step out and enjoy it. A job completed, a task finished. We know that to be gratefully satisfied by a job completed is a gift from our Creator, from our God. And Monday evening, one that I was eagerly looking forward to. My lawn needed to be mowed, and so I was mowing, and and having Jared's illustration and his teaching from Ecclesiastes 3 in mind, I looked forward to surveying the estate after finishing mowing. However, I finished only closely before it got dark, and so even those moments of savoring my work were fleeting. But if we were to take this imagery and continue it on into Ecclesiastes 4, which is always dangerous with an illustration, but I'm going to do it. If we were to continue that imagery, it might look something like this. You've completed the mowing. You're stepping onto your front porch to look at your work when the following events happen in quick succession. First, you see and hear a man down the street loudly screaming at his child. His words and actions only escalate as the child cries for comfort. Then your next door neighbor, also having just completed his lawn, walks over and immediately begins critiquing your work, pointing out a few wobbly lines, some improvements for your edging, and that you forgot to blow off the sidewalk. Each criticism magnified by his pristine example that he gladly points out. You start to tune out that next-door neighbor and look across the way at your other neighbor. He's busily working on his own yard, cultivated to perfection, having just finished his lawn as well. Since you've, again, checked out from your other neighbor's critique, you begin to wonder about this neighbor. He's alone. He's single. He keeps people at an arm's length relationally and doesn't seem to have any family in the area. You wonder at how he handles his loneliness, even as he gives himself to busyness. And then lastly, you look across the street to watch your older neighbor neighbor pull into his garage slowly. Given the recent mowing on your side of the street, the overgrown nature of his lawn and landscaping stands out. It seems like it was a beautiful yard 10 or 15 years ago, but it has now become unmanageable in his season of life. With the angry man's shout still ringing in the distance, your next door neighbor shaking his head at your missed spot while trimming, the other neighbor still busily tending to his yard's imperceptible issues, and the garage door closing across the street, you turn back inside. Any chance at satisfaction, joy in your completed work is lost. Perhaps counterintuitively, this morning's passage first teaches us if we are to be kept from final despair to gaze upon human groaning under the sun. To gaze upon human groaning under the sun. 
To gaze is to look steadily, intently at something, sometimes with surprise or astonishment, always with thoughtfulness. It's contrasted with the fleeting glance that moves us on to new distractions. To gaze bears the fruit of focus. It is patient meditation that draws out understanding, reflection, and then response as an art critic sits unmoving before his favorite painting. To gaze is the task that Solomon has for us first. Look with me if you have Ecclesiastes 4 open at verses 1, 4, 7, and 15. The phrase, I saw, appears four times. In the case of the CSB, verse 1 is translated, I observed. The idea is the same. Solomon intends for us to see with patient steadiness and thoughtful intent. But what does he intend for us to see? What are we to gaze upon in our time this morning? Human groaning. Human groaning, but in varied form and sometimes initially obscured. Over the course of chapter 4, we will look at four portraits And these portraits may seem initially to be the successful situations that you and I might long for and be drawn to. But a patient eye under Solomon's instruction will see through the fleeting glory to the firmer ground of human emptiness and groaning under the sun. We are meant to see in this passage the transience, the emptiness of human work. One commentator writes this, This is the corrective which man needs to his perennial conviction that he can make unlimited progress. For until the end of the age and the break-in of God's full reign, Paul's words in Romans 8.20, that all of creation is subjected to futility, still apply to us. Why the emphasis under the sun? Again, if you have Ecclesiastes 4 open, look with me at verses 1, 3, 7, and 15. Each of these four portraits involves reflection, gazing under the sun. These portraits and the wise reflections that flow from our gaze are all bounded by a material perspective. What exists under the sun That which we can see and hear and touch is the limit of our investigation. And emptiness is the final conclusion to every meditation that is bounded by this material system. Here is one example. Often on Saturday mornings when our schedule allows it, we have pancakes or waffles. And along with pancakes or waffles, we read uh, from Operation World a book that looks at countries throughout the world and ways that we can be praying for them in the advance of the gospel into the nations. Well, uh, one of the countries assigned to September 2nd was Monaco. Fun enough, it's also a great way to train your little children in geography as you look at things like where in the world is Monaco, right? But Monaco, it's in Europe, This is one of the the prayer requests that captures this emptiness of which we will see in 
chapter 4 and this idea under the sun. It says this, Monaco is culturally Catholic, but the real culture is one of materialistic hedonism. It is very difficult to foster interest in spiritual things in such an environment. Pray that many would see the ultimate emptiness of such a lifestyle and seek the fullness of life Christ offers. The predominant view, the predominant practice of life in Monaco is that of a closed materialistic system. Only that which they see, hear, and touch has any sense of reality or value. And the prayer here is that God would break in and they might see the ultimate emptiness of that bounded system. Well, let's gaze together with Solomon on these four portraits in chapter 4 as we begin. The first portrait is in verses 1 through 3, beginning in verse 1. Again, I observed all the acts of oppression being done under the sun. Look at the tears of those who are oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. Power is with those who oppress them. They have no one to comfort them. So I commended the dead who have already died more than the living who are still alive. But better than either of them is the one who has not yet existed, who has not seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. What does Solomon want us to gaze upon, to stare at intently for a few moments? He sees oppression without comfort for the oppressed. No one is there to comfort. And so Solomon reflects and says, I congratulate the dead who no longer must endure this evil world. It's, it's a shocking statement. Essentially to say something like, you know, well, I congratulate those who died before the 20th century and did not have to endure the century of death and war. What an odd thing to celebrate, to congratulate. Solomon is not intending to solve the issue of oppression in this passage, but he observes its futility and its heaviness for those who have no one to comfort them. But he continues and he reaches this conclusion, better is the one not yet in existence who has not seen active evil under the sun. Even the dead have had to endure it, though they must no longer. This is the sorrow of lament. As Solomon gazes upon the broken world he sees, the present evil of observed oppression and the absence of comfort should cause us to despair in a closed materialist system. If all that exists is what we see, hear, and touch, in many ways, we ought to be led to despair. If the idea of oppression and an absence of comfort feel abstract to you, hard to wrap your mind around, consider more personally your worst nightmare. Consider that worst nightmare under a prolonged night when the sun does not seem to ever rise and with the knowledge that there is no one and will be no one to comfort you from that prolonged nightmare. This is the weight, the bitterness and despair that results from a reflection on oppression 
under the sun. Solomon, again, does not seek to solve the problem here, but moves us along to a second portrait, a portrait of competition driven by envy and jealousy. This is verses 4 through 6 in chapter 4. Look with me at those. I saw that all labor and all skillful work is due to one's per- one person's jealousy of another. This too is futile in the pursuit of the wind. The fool folds his arms and consumes his own flesh. Better one handful with rest than two handfuls with effort and the pursuit of the wind. Where does Solomon turn our gaze next? He wants us to see labor motivated by envy and jealousy. And he reflects in this way, that though this labor may produce great innovation, leads to wealth and comfort, it is empty and vain. Why? Leveraging our work for comparative satisfaction will never ultimately satisfy. Because on one, the one hand, you'll find another who has done it better. Or on the other, your work, your win, will ultimately fade and decay. You'll have to prove yourself over again. So Solomon reaches this conclusion. He frames it in a proverbial statement. He says, labor is a good necessity. The wrong conclusion is to throw up your hands in despair and not work. But on the other hand, labor for maximal comparative gain is empty. Better to work and find rest in the reward of your labor. Solomon observes strikingly that even the winners cannot ultimately win in the end. And in the closed system that is chapter 4's perspective, counsels contentment and rest. For your labor will face the same futility. I know that some in this room are students at one stage uh, working on one degree or another. And you understand the meritocracy that can be present in your classroom, on your campus, among your degree, where everyone is comparing, everyone is competing, everyone is moved and motivated by envy and jealousy. If you were to zoom out and think more candidly, your interactions with other students may look more like a bunch of crawdads climbing on one another trying to get out of a bucket. But that type of envy and jealousy cultivates only emptiness and futility. The third portrait, as Solomon moves us along, he intends for us to gaze upon isolation in verses 7 through 12. Look with me there. Again, I saw futility under the sun. There is a person without a companion, without even a son or brother, And though there is no end to all his struggles, his eyes are still not content with riches. Who am I struggling for, he asks, and depriving myself of good things? This too is futile and a miserable task. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. 
A cord of three strands is not easily broken. What does Solomon see here? Where are we to rest our gaze? On discontentment with riches gained due to loneliness and isolation. Solomon realizes that an absence of relationships empties endless labor of satisfaction. This man works and works and works, gaining all the time, yet he draws no satisfaction from the experiences of his accumulated wealth. Who will it go to? Now, one note in our text. Verse 8 in the CSB says this, Who am I struggling for? This man asks, depriving myself of good things. If you have an ESV or a New American Standard or another translation along those lines, it frames it slightly differently. So that he, it says this, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling? I simply want to make that note if you happen to have a different translation in front of you, to stop and think that either way, in this textual translation, This man is either immersed in his work in such a way that he never stops to note his emptiness and his loneliness, or he does consider it and is faced with that emptiness and loneliness. And so Solomon concludes in verses 9 through 12, as he looks at this portrait, reward comes from relationship. Care and investment in others strengthens and sustains. Solomon's counsel in these few verses is sweet, and it's often quoted, appropriately so. The value of community and connectedness is a good thing. We are called out of self-centeredness to engage in the lives of others. But this is not Solomon's emphasis in the passage. In fact, his reflections on connectedness and community remain, as it were, under the sun. You might be prone to perhaps even ask that last sentence. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. But what of death, friends? Death can break that strand. Death can separate and sunder even the closest of relationships. And so we are still left wondering, groaning at life under the sun. The fourth portrait. Solomon moves us along in verses 13 through 16 to gaze upon prestige and position. Beginning in verse 13, Better is a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer pays attention to warnings. For he came from prison to be king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who move about under the sun follow a second youth who succeeds him. There is no limit to all the people who were before them, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. This too is futile and a pursuit of the wind. What does Solomon intend for us to gaze upon here? Well, he orders it slightly differently than the other portraits we have seen. But what does he see? What are we to see? It's people following a new leader who then follow a different leader and a different leader, and a different one. Others who came before, again, followed a different leader. Others who will come after won't care or remember who the leader is today. Solomon's conclusion 
is that it is better to be marked by wisdom in ascendancy, a poor, wise youth who rises to kingship, though his circumstances don't lead us to anticipate it, than foolishness and decline, this old foolish king who ignores the counsel of others. Yet the point here is that both will ultimately be forgotten. Their position, their prestige, their moment of memory will soon be lost. It is meaningless and empty. Though not in the area of leadership, I'm reminded looking at this section of our gardening and landscaping that my wife and I once did at our house in Lawrence before we moved to Kansas City. Grace and I both enjoy gardening and working outside, and so over the course of several years at our home in Lawrence, Grace had developed a flourishing flower garden. Together we had cultivated two raised garden beds for happy tomatoes and peppers. A few months after we moved to Kansas City and sold our home, we drove down our old street to pick up a package that had been mistakenly mailed to our old address and, and picked up by some old neighbors. And we weren't ready for what we saw. It was a gut punch to see the garden beds, the entirety of the front flower beds, and other landscaping entirely ripped out by the new owners. Right? But that, that, was my, that was my yard. That was my work. It was intended to last. It was marked by beauty and joy. And yet those who came after me cared little for it and in fact tore it all out. In the, same, in the same way, we are faced by that groaning emptiness. Solomon calls us in each of these four portraits to gaze at human groaning, not simply to touch upon the pain and distress and disorientation of our emptiness and then move on to a new distraction, but to stop, to look steadily at the groaning of humanity under the sun. These portraits trace the perplexing emptiness of life, even when success seems readily at hand. But what do we do with this? Up to this point, even Solomon's counsel has only turned us back on ourselves, still encountering the emptiness and futility of life under the sun. The end of chapter 4, we must look up and out, above or beyond the sun, as it were, for help. And this reminds me of one of the most sobering chapters in C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It's titled The Dark Island. In the midst of this story, this uh, company on a voyage to first recover these lost lords who have, been, who have not been heard of for years, and then perhaps to reach the end of the world. They are searching and they come to a dark island. It's not really a, a place, a physical place, but it is an emptiness, a darkness, a total blackness that they enter into. They end up rescuing one of the lords who has, or at least seems he is on the verge of losing his mind, having been stuck in blackness, darkness, emptiness for years. They bring him on board and then they realize we must escape this place. The captain is uh, 
asked by Caspian the king, how long did we take rowing in? I mean, rowing to where we picked up the stranger. And the captain says, five minutes. Why? Caspian says, because we've been here more than that already, trying to get out. There's a growing sense of fear that they will never leave the bounded system of the dark island. In fact, the man who has been stuck there begins to laugh and says, of course, right? What a fool I was to have thought they would let me go as easily as that. No, no, we shall never get out. Left to ourselves in chapter 4, that is the weight of despair we face. Facing human groaning under the sun, will we ever get out? But then Lucy, sweet Lucy, leans her head on the edge of the fighting top where she is located and whispers, Aslan, Aslan, if ever you loved us at all, send us help now. She looks outside of her darkness, outside of the, the bounded system for which she sees for help to come. And what happens? It says this. There was a tiny speck of light ahead. And while they watched, a broad beam of light fell from it upon the ship. It did not alter the surrounding darkness, but the whole ship was lit up as if by a searchlight. Caspian blinked, stared round, saw the faces of his companions all with wild, fixed expressions. Lucy looked along the beam of light and presently saw something in it. At first it looked like a cross, then it looked like an airplane, then a kite, and at last with a whirring of wings it was right overhead and was an albatross. It circled three times round the mast and then perched for an instant on the crest of the gilded dragon at the prow. It called out in a strong, sweet voice what seemed to be words, though no one understood them. After that, it spread its wings, rose, and began to fly slowly ahead, bearing a little to starboard. Drinian, the captain, steered after it, not doubting that it offered good guidance. But no one except Lucy knew that as it circled the mast, it had whispered to her, Courage, dear heart. And the voice, she felt sure, was Aslan. What was it that began to guide them out of the empty wandering under the sun, in this case, in the dark island? It was one who came from outside, brought light and life in, and then began to mark a, a course forward. It was Aslan. In this case, as we face the end of chapter 4, we're not done yet. But in chapter 5... We cease to gaze upon human groaning under the sun and instead go to the eternal God above the sun. Look with me at chapter 5, verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Better to approach in obedience than to offer the sacrifice as fools do, for they ignorantly do wrong. Do not be hasty to speak and do not be impulsive to make a speech before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Just as dreams accompany much labor, so also a fool's voice comes with many words. When you make a vow to God, don't delay fulfilling it, because he does not delight in fools. Fulfill what you vow. Better that you do not vow than that you vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth bring guilt on you, 
And do not say in the presence of the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry with your words and destroy the work of your hands? For many dreams bring futility, so do many words. Therefore, fear God. We must heed Solomon's warning, even as we feel the urgency of seeking answers to the perplexities of chapter 4. What is the warning? What is it that Solomon sees? He sees an emptiness of religious performance. In some ways, perhaps, even the, the training of heart and mind under the sun has spilled over even into the way that this fool seeks to relate with God. Solomon sees fools in rash ignorance speaking vows to God rather than closing their mouths to listen and obey. What should they do? Be quiet, listen, and obey. You may have noticed we began even our time this morning in a moment of silence to set aside distractions and all that we bring in to be quiet. Not first to bring our words, but to listen. In our call to worship, Paul does not craft his own words, but directs us to hear again from God's words. This is what it looks like to listen. One textual note, again, if you happen to have a different translation in front of you, I want to uh, simply clarify one thing in, in case you caught the, the distinction. In the CSB, it states this, better to approach in obedience. Right? But the ESV says to draw near to listen is better. The New American Standard, approach to listen. What's going on here? Well, what the CSB translators have done is they've connected listening with the right following application of obedience. And they've simply made that connection for us in the translation. Friends, that's what listening results in. It's not simply a passive act, but it's something that takes in what God speaks and results in a reorientation, a transformation of life and practice. I wonder also, as we have been in chapter 4, gazing at life under the sun, Let's stop for a moment and ask, who is this God that they are to listen to, that we are to listen to? In chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, we have seen that he is the wise ruler and judge who orders, controls, and understands the times and seasons of our lives and judges both the righteous and the wicked. Yet in the midst of impatience or pressure, the fool turns away from this knowledge of God and makes vows to God concerning sacrifices or offerings. He's profuse in his words and his promises that make it seem as if God could be swayed or controlled by mere words. In his speech, the fool makes it clear that he does not know who God really is. The fool's babbling comes with minimal expectation of follow-through. When the messenger of the priest who heard the vow, or perhaps the priest himself, comes to check on the follow-through of this fool's vow, the fool is cautioned not simply to count it a mistake. And yet it seems that he does. Ah, I forgot about it. God is not to be trifled with. 
In fact, Solomon reflects, it's better not to vow than to vow and not fulfill it. Why? Because God exists and he will bring you and I to judgment for every word we utter. This is the first appearance of judgment in this entire passage that we've been in this morning. Up until now, again, it has been a closed system. Better has been limited to the horizontal, the natural, the material. But now, eternity enters in. Instead of looking at life simply from the point of birth to death and the tyranny of time that rests upon us, the judge of all history, of all action, thought, and deed, enters. One commentator reflects in this way, by insisting that God is judge of every act and every man, he brings eternity to bear on us, even though time without that dimension destroys us. It follows that nothing is meaningless, for God assesses it, and no one is forgotten, however short may be the human memory. And so Solomon reflects, be careful in the house of God. He is in heaven. We are on earth. This is a sober thing. This is what it means to fear God, to be silent, to listen, to draw near. And friends, a right fear of God reflects and cultivates a right and growing knowledge of him. I'm thankful to Joseph earlier this week as we were discussing this passage, he uh, pointed me to a sweet poem called The Pulley by George Herbert, Herbert that captures this connection between a right fear of God facing our emptiness and a right knowing of him, of drawing near. Here is the poem. When God at first made man, having a glass of blessings standing by, let us, said he, pour on him all we can, let the world's riches, which dispersed lie, contract into a span. So strength first made away, then beauty flowed, then wisdom, honor, pleasure. When almost all was out, God made a stay, perceiving that alone of all his treasure rest in the bottom lay. For if I should, said he, bestow this jewel also on my creature, he would adore my gifts instead of me and rest in nature, not the God of nature, so both should losers be. Yet let him keep the rest, but keep them with repining restlessness. Let him be rich and weary, that at least if goodness lead him not, yet weariness may toss him to my breast. The emptiness the futility upon which we have gazed with Solomon in chapter 4 is intended to guide us, to guard us, and to lead us to God. A friend, I wonder, what do you think you will hear in the silence as you draw near? Do you fear what you might find? If you're an unbeliever, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. If you, or any of us, were to approach God who is creator and judge on the basis of your own merit and in the standing of your own name, you could only expect the just and eternal judgment of God against you. What you need is a mediator. 
Someone to stand in your place. A representative in whose name and credit you can stand. Friend, his name is Jesus. In his sacrificial death on the cross, he paid the penalty of sin for all who trust in him. And he was raised from the dead and now represents all those united to him by faith before God the Father. Emptied of both personal works or pretty words, it is in Jesus and in Jesus alone that we draw near to God. As one hymn says, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. And fellow Christian, brother or sister, does this same question haunt you? What do you think you will hear should you draw near quiet, silent, having ceased your speaking to listen to what God has to say in your perplexity. Hear the words from Hebrews 4. Friend, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. And what might that boldness look like as you sit in the dark under the sun? It might sound a little bit like Micah 7, verses 8 and 9. When the believer says this, Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will stand up. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I must endure the Lord's fury until he champions my cause and establishes justice for me. He will bring me into the light. I will see his salvation. Friends, we go to the eternal God above the sun. I began our time this morning from Psalm 73. The psalmist faced the emptiness, the jealousy even, of what seemed ease and success among those who did not know God and in fact rejected God. So much so, again, that he was animal in his response, striking out, confused, perplexed. Well, in my reading of Psalm 73, I must confess I left out a few verses. And so to close, we'll revisit these few verses that pick up what we left out. If you're there with, at Psalm 73, I'm starting in verse 16. I read this part, but trace with me what the psalmist does and where the psalmist goes after his gaze upon the wicked. When I tried to understand all this, what he had seen, what confused and perplexed him, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. He went to God's house. Then I understood their destiny. Indeed, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end, swept away by terrors. Like one waking from a dream, Lord, when arising, you will despise their image. The psalmist enters the house of God, pursuing him. And it is there, and only there, that he perceives their end. Their success is transient. Their flourishing soon to fade. And so the, the psalmist concludes not simply in understanding, but in Psalm 73, even in his beastly bitterness, 
drawing near to God. Verse 23, he realizes, yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me up in glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. It is God and God alone who keeps you from final despair by training you first to gaze on human groaning under the sun, but then lifting your eyes and going to him, the eternal God, who is above the sun. Let's pray. Father, as we gather, as we hear, as we quiet ourselves to hear again from your word, continue to speak. As we bring burdens and great perplexities that stare us in the face, perhaps even from just this morning or a following or, or the previous week, perhaps even it's farther off in the past, but we feel the weight of human futility under the sun. And so train our hearts to fear you, to know you, and to go to you. In the name of Jesus. Amen.